Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. Now as we enter our 30th year together, Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning where you always determine our agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com. This Thursday after the news is 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. And I tried today to go directly to SoundCloud, and I did not get updated most recent Money Talks. So I'm going to work on that this week and get my colleague Lindsay to help me. But I did go to newsradioklbj.com and was able to get to the most recent Money Talk broadcast. I encourage you to do that. 512-836-0590. The rules are I take today's calls first and then today's text second and then any previous text that I have been unable to fully answer third. It's always a great idea to call at the beginning of the hour or text, giving me ample opportunity to do my best to answer your question. 512-836-0590. Carl, please explain the difference between a mutual fund and an exchange-traded fund, or ETF, and how I would pick one instead of the other. Would there ever be a reason to avoid one? I use index funds. Thanks. Well, this is a terrific question because for the vast majority of my 45 years around the financial world, mutual funds were what was available, and they were called open-end funds or 40 Act funds related to the the Securities Act of 1940. They were called open-end funds because they were always available unless the company closed them, and you could buy them throughout the day or sell them throughout the day because the price that you received for a purchase or a sale was the value of the portfolio at the end of the trading day. The term for that is the net asset value, or NAV. And so whether you were buying an index fund from Vanguard or Fidelity, or you were buying an actively managed fund from T. Rowe Price or American Funds, you were going to get the value at the end of the day. Then along came exchange-traded funds. The term relates to the fact that just like stocks, these funds trade throughout the day. And the first ones to come out, we would call passive, meaning that they follow a specific index. For example, the Standard & Poor 500 or the NASDAQ. And so that allowed you as an investor to either buy this S&P 500 open-end fund or to buy the S&P 500 exchange-traded fund. What were the pros and cons of the exchange-traded fund? Well, there are two two groups that I would argue would use these. There are traders who want to be able to get in and out of securities throughout the the day, Uh, and there are also people who want to use uh, trading strategies to hedge their portfolio, maybe short an index ETF or put on an option trade. You couldn't really do that with an open-end fund. Uh, And then there are large investors who may decide that 
because of their short-term outlook, they want to they want to add to their equity exposure, and with one order they can they can get that, and they know exactly what the price is. Now there are some benefits to exchange traded funds. One is that they're tax efficient, and I'm talking here now about index funds so far, passive. They're tax efficient. What that means is that even though the S&P 500 is reconstituted, I don't frankly remember, I think it's annually, so that means that Standard & Poor's determines which companies' stocks are in the index, so there is some trading. And because the exchange-traded fund has buyers and sellers, there's unique circumstance and structure with what's called an authorized party. And it's it's worked in such a fashion, developed and designed in such a fashion, that it doesn't distribute capital gains. As whereas in a in an actively managed fund, it's possible to have a capital gain, although it's pretty much unlikely in a passive index. The other thing is that the end the passive index funds, if you compare the opened end fund to the exchange traded fund, it's been my experience that the exchange traded fund is less expensive, and they're both quite inexpensive. And they're both open-end and exchange-traded funds. If you're talking about, say, an S&P 500 fund, whether you're talking about Vanguard Index 500 or the State Street Spider SPY S&P 500, they're both tax-efficient. And because the underlying index has companies which pay dividends, you've got those dividends are passed through. You reinvest them, I hope, but that's still a taxable event to you. So that's the difference, and there's one other difference, and it depends on, frankly, the custodian uh, with which you are working and where you have the funds located. Some custodians will charge a transaction fee for an exchange-traded fund, whereas they will not for an opened-end fund. Other custodians, uh, I've seen the opposite, where they'll say their stock trades have no transaction fees and they treat exchange-traded funds like stocks, and so there's no transaction charge. Whereas open-end funds, maybe, the let's just use Vanguard as an example because they're so large and so well-known, they may not be willing to pay the custodian some fee to uh, put the, put their funds on the uh, on their platform or, or help them and in, in the company in marketing, and so they might charge a fee for that. So you, you want to look into that. Now, you say you use index funds, so I've answered that question. I will say, however, that there, because the, these exchange-traded funds have become so popular that I read that in the most recent reporting period, I say it like that because I'm not sure if it was 2023, although I suspect it was, was the first year in which more money went into exchange-traded funds than into 40-act or opened-end funds. I also note that many, uh, shall I call them, historical or traditional active managers offer index funds. I beg your pardon, offer exchange-traded funds. Early on, PIMCO, which is, a lo- which is known as a very large fixed-income bond manager and had offered 40-act funds, began to offer exchange-traded funds. And I now see other large active managers like, say, American Funds, a capital group, which also offer exchange-traded funds. It's been my experience, I should say our experience, because my colleague and I, Lindsay, have been interviewing a lot of mutual fund people. So far, it's been our experience that if it's, an active, if it's a traditional actively managed 
strategy, let's just say active managed equities, stocks, that that the, shall we say, the lookalike or the clone uh, exchange traded fund is not exactly the same. And when we've been in conversations with portfolio managers of those types of funds and in different strategies, they will say they don't have the same breadth of opportunity. We were talking with portfolio managers in an event-driven arbitrage fund, and that's what they told us. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but given how many billions of dollars are moving into exchange-traded funds, if you are an index fund investor and you find that you don't have transaction costs with the ETFs, then by and large, you're going to be better off because it will be tax efficient, uh, and that would be the place that I would go. Thanks for the question. It's time for me to take a break. It's a great time for you to call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ. 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Carl, I am thinking of transferring my IBM 401k to a Fidelity rollover IRA. But I'm not sure I want to give up the stable value fund, even though presently I don't keep much in it. But I like the option in case that performance improves. So I, I believe what this uh, person is talking about is uh, in some defined contribution plans, and apparently in the IBM 401k, there is a, there is a stable value fund, which by, is what it says it is, the value doesn't shift up and down, and it pays a certain level of yield. I could call it interest. I'm going to call it yield. And that's a unique investment product. You're not going to see that uh, at Fidelity or, or, frankly, anybody else that I'm aware of. And, yes, that's something that you're going to miss if you do the rollover to Fidelity. Personally, I'm not sure that, that that's a hurdle uh, that's a high hurdle. Here's the reason why. If over time the interest moves up and down based on what it's invested in, and I'm going to I'm going to make the I hope educated presumption that's invested in some form of bond portfolio, the move in interest rates would affect in positive and negative ways a bond fund. If rates fell you'd have a total return potential in the bond fund and you would not in the stable value. And over time, the stable value yield should decline. But you could put it in a fidelity government money market fund or a prime fund or a treasury fund. Uh, I like the government one because it invests in treasuries and government agencies uh, currently over 5%. Now, if and when the Fed lowers interest rates, that's going to go down but they will keep the net asset value at a dollar a share. So I'm not sure if you like the idea of going to Fidelity and you like the funds there, then I'm not sure that having not having a stable value fund is altogether a significant reason to stay with the IBM plan. Uh, so if I think unless it's just, you know, because it's, it's 
not that attractive over time. In my experience, if you're trying to make the money grow with an acceptable level of risk, then I think bond funds, because not always by any means, but investment-grade bond funds historically have had low correlations to equities, 2022 being a notable exception. And I think you have now some total return potential now that rates have risen so sharply that eventually when the Federal Reserve reverses its policy, there's some history suggests there's some really terrific returns for the next one, two, three years. And if you're in a stable value fund, that opportunity will not be available for you. So um, I, I'm, if I were in your shoes without knowing all the, all the facts of your circumstances, I'd probably go ahead with the move to the Fidelity IRA rollover. Thanks for the text. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. I'm going to have some bloviation material here. That ought to scare you. But I was reading in today's Wall Street Journal. I thought this was a fascinating historical perspective. For those of you who follow the stock market, you know that there's been this amazing move upward in the stock of NVIDIA because NVIDIA makes chips that are specifically used in artificial intelligence. And I'm not saying they have a monopoly because I don't think they do, but they certainly have the market leader in position. And just in the short time, this the two months of 2024, they're, um, they're up 59%, I should say in nine weeks, up 59%, and last year up 239%. And and if you look so far this year at the gain in the S&P 500, which is through Friday about 7.9, 7.95%, fully 28% of that is attributable to the gain in NVIDIA stocks. And it gets even perhaps more concentrated, according to this article in the Wall Street Journal, that the 10 biggest stocks in, in terms of performance in the Standard & Poor 500 a third of them, the top three, which would be Microsoft, Apple, and NVIDIA, represent 17.9% of all the stocks in the S&P 500. How can that occur? Because there are lots of big companies in there, like, say, ExxonMobil or Procter & Gamble or many others. And it's because the S&P 500 is what we call a market capitalization weighted or market cap index, where the weighting... W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N, the weighting of a company's stock in the index is a function of the price per share times the number of shares. So if the number of shares remains stable, but the price goes up, it takes that company's stock takes a larger and larger percentage of the index. I was Someone today was in, in, uh, in Barron's was saying it's an actively managed momentum fund, which I thought was a classic way of saying it, because when energy stocks have a multi-year run upward, they're going to be disproportionately larger percentages of the S&P 500. And when information technology stocks, like they have done, are disproportionately outperforming, they will be a bigger percentage of it. So that's what they mean by the top three or 17.9% of it. So then people wonder, well, gosh, this seems pretty unique. And maybe this is as bad as it was in 1999 before the what we call the dot-com bubble burst, easy for me to say. But I'm just going to read to you what I wrote down here. Then in the 1950s, 
The 10 biggest companies regularly, including AT&T, DuPont, and General Motors, exceeded 30% of the value of all U.S. stocks. Think about that. And in July of 1955, General Motors alone, up 78% over the previous 12 months, amounted to 6.8% of the value of the entire U.S. stock market. Pretty remarkable. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. I would say that the consensus on Wall Street is that the Fed will begin to cut interest rates this year. Earlier this year, and what, what, what the way we look at this uh, and the financial press looks at it is the way interest rate futures are priced. And there was some indication after what was called the Fed pivot when Chairman Powell said that it, they were done raising interest rates and that the next move would be down. And that was in, I believe, November of last year. Uh, the consensus was we might have as based on the futures market as much as six or seven cuts this year. And if you're a regular listener to Money Talk, I've talked about how perceptions about the outlook for the economy this year have shifted over the last year from where I my judgment from reading and listening and attending webinars and what have you is that the consensus of economists was that because interest rates had risen so rapidly so quickly that that would throw the country into a recession and that has not come to pass job growth is robust and while inflation has come down it's certainly not at the two percent target of the federal reserve and what we see is that the move the hard so-called hard landing big recession kind of situation is further and further uh, either into the future or becoming a less popular opinion and the so-called soft landing uh, has become more of a popular consensus, if it will, if you will, and the idea that the Fed will reduce rates. And I would say that probably the consensus today is maybe two, two, possibly three, but probably two cuts this year, and that's uh, certainly it would be a positive for the bond market. So I'm, I'm going to do unless I get a call or a text at five one two eight three six zero five ninety. Is, is share with you a, a contrarian view uh, from an economist that I have high regard for. His name happens to be Torsten Slock, S-L-O-K, and he's with Apollo. Uh, and those of you who follow the financial markets know that they are major players in the financial markets. And he titled his commentary, The Fed Will Not Cut Rates in 2024. The market came in, and he's talking about the financial markets, stock and bond market, the market came into 2023 expecting a recession, as I said. The market went into 2024 expecting six Fed cuts. The reality is that the U.S. economy is simply not slowing down, and the Fed pivot, which is what I talked about a minute ago, has provided a strong tailwind to growth since December. As a result, the Fed will not cut rates this year, and rates are going to stay higher for longer. I'm going to get into uh, what he's talking about here if I don't get a text or a call, but I just got a text. I told you I'd scare you. Let's see what this has to say. Love your show, Carl. It is better in retirement. To t- is it better in retirement to take distributions monthly or annually? I personally prefer an annual download 
so I don't worry about short-term fluctuations. Your thoughts? I don't think that there's any statistical data to say that one is better than the other. Uh, I've seen it both ways, particularly uh, around required minimum distributions. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, I see a flurry of required minimum distributions being taken in January, and I see a flurry of required minimum distributions being taken in December. And in talking with people who make those decisions, the people who take it in January are in your camp. They just want to take the market risk off the table, put the money in the bank, and they'll be able to plan out their budget for the year. The people who take it in December say, look, Two out of three years, based on history, the stock market goes up, and I have some allocation to equities, and I'm, pre- I'm prepared to take that risk, so I'm going to wait till the very end. Now, the third way, and this is also quite common, and I would say it just helps people with their financial planning, is they set up their retirement account for monthly or quarterly distributions in such a fashion that they know that money is coming in. In fact, their custodian can send it directly through ACH to their checking account, and they know the money's coming in just like their Social Security income or just like their pension income, and they like that. As far as I'm concerned, I don't think there's one way that's better than the other, and if, if you like doing it this way, then I'm 100% with you. It's time for me to take a break. We have all of our lines available. Call or text 512 512- Eight three six zero five ninety, and stick around for the second half of Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ five ninety AM and ninety nine point seven FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here this afternoon for another 27 minutes. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com or go there and download previous broadcasts. Also, this Thursday after the news at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show, 512-836-0590. Lauren, you're on the air. How may I help? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you can now. You hear please please go ahead. Yes, please proceed. Okay, great. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, quick question. I, I'm currently using Mint as a budgeting app. Uh, it does, you know, you can link your credit cards, um, your bank account, and it kind of just like a central location. They are going away, and I'm not sure if you had used Mint or had heard about Mint. I was just was wondering if you had any, they're no longer going to be, I guess, in service and they're transferring everything to Credit Karma. Do you have any um, sort of money budget apps that you recommend that kind of, you know, manage yeah. Yeah. not only your credit cards, but your, right. you know, your checking account, saving account, right. CDs, et cetera, all kind right. of in one location? That's a terrific question. The answer is I do not. But one of the great things about this broadcast is that we have lots of people listening, and someone may well have the answer to that. Uh, and so I would, encur- I would encourage you to listen to the rest of the broadcast today and anytime. Okay. If we don't get somebody and you have a chance to listen to the podcast, you can always go through there and see as well. But what we need from our listeners is someone to come to either text me or call me with the answer to Lauren's question. Lauren, keep listening and thanks for your call. You're listening. You you bet. You're listening to Money Talk 
on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Carl, regarding the 4% withdrawal rule, is the 4% calculated once at the beginning of the retirement or is it recalculated every year based on the value of the portfolio? If the latter is correct, then at some point during down years, your forced percent could be substantially lower. That's thanks a bunch. Love your show. You're welcome. Yes, my understanding of where the 4% came from was if you had a 65% allocation, I would say 60, to equities, and you took 4% of the previous calendar year ending value, you could every year adjust that by the CPI, Consumer Price Index, and you would have a high probability of never running out of money. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to have a lot of money uh, you know, when you're 90 years old, but the way they use Monte Carlo simulations, that's what they came up with. So you're absolutely right. This leads to a volatility of income. In fact, the three years of 21, 22, and 23 are perfect examples. And so there are two kinds of ways, in my view, to deal with that. One is don't spend all the 4%, so you have a cushion. Leave money to grow and don't take the 4%. If that's not practical, you can do what endowments and foundations do. I serve on some endowment and foundation boards. And what we do to smooth out the volatility of the change in value of the portfolio is we use a three-year trailing number. And we may update that annually or we may update it quarterly. So what happens is you take the value of the portfolio, in this example, at the end of 2021, 2022 and 2023 and you add all those together and divide it by three and whatever that number is you take four percent of that so in a period of falling values and typically that's 12 to 18 months no guarantee you're going to have not the sharp decline in income and in periods of rising values which tend to be much longer you're going to be able to take more money, but again, you're going to have those poor years previously that will keep you from taking 4% of the biggest number because you had an excellent year. So I'll, if, you, if you have to take the 4%, then what I would do if I were in your shoes is I would use a three, frankly, if you use a four-year number, it's even more smoothed out, but I don't if you can afford that, but at least a three-year rolling average to do the 4% for if you're retired. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. John, you're on the air. How may I help? Hi, Carl. Hi. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, the uh, uh, first thing is you were talking a few weeks ago about core bond funds. Yes. And how attractive they were now. Yes. But now it seems like you backed off of that because of the uh, the Fed's uh, change on uh, sure um, on sure. cutting interest yeah. rates. I, well, thank you for bringing that up. You're obviously a, a regular, intelligent listener. I have not backed off. 
I have not changed my allocation whatsoever. But I recognize that it's possible that the consensus is mistaken. Bonds this year, if you just use the ag, which is the Bloomberg ag, is down about 1.15 year to date. I still think core bonds are very, very attractive. And the reason I think so, there's two reasons. One, there's a lot of historical data, John, that indicate that when you buy a bond or a bond fund, that whatever that, we call it the coupon, whatever that income level is, let's just say it's 5%, that over the longer period of time, that's going to be your return. So if you buy a 10-year treasury at a four and a quarter, that's likely what's going to be your return when you look back 10 years later. And the same is true in core bonds. So I still like core bonds. I do think it's possible. I just had read this. I have high regard for this particular economist, but he doesn't represent the consensus. But I do think that if they if they postpone or don't lower rates this year, I don't see them raising rates. So I don't think there's a real headwind for bonds from here. I still like core bonds. Thank you. What is your second question, please? John, are you there? No, okay. I can't hear you, Carl, so I'm going to hang up. Okay, Thanks. thank you. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here is another text. Thanks for the great show. You're welcome. There's an actively managed mutual fund I'm thinking about investing in, and it also has an exchange-traded fund version. For a few reasons, I would prefer to use the ETF version, but are they really the same investments? My experience is no, but you would need to find, I'm trying to think this through. If you are a do-it-yourself investor, then you're going to rely on, in my view, the website to compare and contrast. If you work through an advisor then you can ask her or him about that. But what we've been experiencing recently when it comes to actively managed funds that are now offering exchange-traded funds, they're not exactly the same. That there are some constraints on managing an actively managed exchange-traded fund that are not there in managing an opened-end fund. It's too early to know if that difference if that constraint shows up in performance over time i like i'm not willing personally if i have the option of doing an open-end fund and i learned that the portfolio managers think that they're going to have constraints in the etf i'll stay with the open-end fund i don't need to experiment with the etf but i don't that's i'm that's just my opinion there's no there's i haven't seen the evidence and frankly this move to actively manage funds in an exchange traded fund wrapper, uh, if you will, or format is frankly just too new for me to know that. I will say that in the bond market that I know from talking with, with some of the large bond managers that when they offer ETFs that they tell us that they are constrained. If yours is an actively, if what you're considering is an actively managed equity fund, I'd want to dig into it. But until I had some return data to compare and contrast the two formats, I'd stay with the open end. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Let's see here. 
if I can get anything else. That's past John. Let's see what this is. Okay. Hey, Carl, love the show. To answer the previous listener's question regarding a good budgeting app, Rocket Money, R-O-C-K-E-T, Rocket, Lauren, I hope you're listening. Rocket Money has been the best one I've ever used. It's a paid subscription-based app, but you get what you pay for these days. Have a great day. P.S. Don't work for them, and I'm not affiliated with them. Good. Now, well, here's another one. It looks like it might be the same topic. Let's see what this one says. Carl, Intuit bought Mint and recommends Mint users migrate to Credit Karma. Lauren, I believe you said that. Which is also Intuit owned. I love, I love Quicken, which is also Intuit owned, but I believe it costs more. One review I read said Quicken is the gold standard. Thanks. I love this show. Thank you all so much for helping Lauren out. It's time for me to take a break. We have all of our lines available. Call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. If you're just tuning in, and unless I get a call or a text, I'm talking about one economist, while I have great regard for him, is saying that it's his view that the Fed will not cut interest rates this year. And I would say, at least as of today, that's a bit of a contrarian view. I think most people expect the Fed to make a couple of cuts at least later this year. And he actually goes through 10 reasons. And I'm going to read these to you, but I will interrupt myself if you call or text 512-836-0590. First, the economy is not slowing down. It is reaccelerating. Growth expectations for this year saw a big jump following the Fed pivot. Remember when I say the Fed pivot, that was when Chairman Powell came out and said, essentially, we're done raising interest rates. The next move will be to lower rates, uh, but we will be what he called data dependent. We'll, we'll watch the numbers. The big jump following the Fed pivot, and that, I might add, led to just a blowout last quarter, in particular, the last two months of 2020 three for both stocks and bonds. Bonds went into that period with a negative return. It came out with a positive return. This, let's see. Growth expectations for the U.S. continue to be revised higher. Two, underlying measures of trend inflation are moving higher. Three, super core inflation, which I'm not familiar with. A measure of inflation preferred by Fed Chair Powell is trending higher. Four, Following the Fed pivot in December, the labor market remains tight, jobless claims are very low, and wage inflation is sticky between 4 and 5%. 5. Surveys of small businesses show that more small businesses are planning to raise selling prices. 6. Manufacturing surveys show a higher trend in prices paid, another leading indicator of inflation. 7. ISM, I believe that's the Institute of Supply Management Services prices, 
boy, do I know a lot of interesting and useless stuff. ISM services prices paid is also trending higher. Eight, surveys of small businesses show that more small businesses are planning to raise worker compensation. Nine, asking rents are rising and more cities are seeing rising rents and home prices rising which we are not, I might add, here in Central Texas, we're seeing falling rents, although that comes off a very strong period before then. And 10, financial conditions to continue to ease following the Fed pivot in December with record high investment-grade bond issuance, high high-yield issuance, initial public offering activity rising, merger and acquisition activity rising, and this will uh, tight credit spreads. Oh, don't worry about that. It's real jargon. And the stock market reaching all-time new highs. So we'll see uh, if more people come to the same conclusion of looking at the data or if it turns out that uh, Mr. Slock is mistaken. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. You've been listening and thinking of calling. You're running out of time. Call 512 or text 512 836 0590. So I was listening to one of the uh, ads during the break, uh, and uh, a per, it was, a, it was a, a clip of a broadcast with my friend Mark Caesar, and, and a person was was complaining about things, uh, and certainly that's her right, and she probably has legitimate reason to, but it reminded me of something, uh, which is how consumer sentiment, how we report we feel about things, uh, the classic is, do you believe the country's heading in the right direction or do you believe the country's heading in the wrong direction? And the wrong direction people are just beating the pants off the right direction people. And it's not unusual during the week <clears throat> for me to visit with people about, I'm, I'm afraid, I don't think I want to invest with the, with the war in Ukraine and in Gaza and what's going on in the Middle East and with the Houthis bot trying to take down the ships, the tankers, and the problems in geopolitics. It's just a bad time to do that, and and people are feeling pretty sour. I've got some really interesting information about how the stock market responds when people are in a bad mood. But fortunately for you, I actually have a text coming in, 512-836-0590. Carl, I believe the original paper regarding the 4% rule is Bill... Bingen, B-E-N-G-E-N's article in the October 1994 Journal of Financial Planning, followed in 1998 by the Trinity Study, which has an article in Wikipedia that appears to have a link, I think, to the original article. Both articles are available online, and some listeners might find them interesting reading. Well, that's terrific. I'm really glad you said that. Thank you. I would say I would add to that that when anybody comes up with that, what they're looking at is they're taking the historical returns from usually stocks, bonds, and cash, the three kind of tradable assets, although I would argue they're today a lot more because it leaves out commodities because you can buy exchange-traded funds of gold and silver, oil, leaves out trend following because you can buy mutual funds and exchange traded funds of managed futures. It leaves out a, a bunch of stuff. But in any event, takes the historical returns of the major asset classes and then throws them together a thousand times 
in various different asset allocations and comes up with this is the optimum allocation and this is how long the money will last if you take this withdrawal. To turn that around, there's software available to you, for you or for your advisor to help you with answering the question, probably the most important question for many listeners, <clears throat> do I have enough money? Do I have enough money to retire? Because I don't know how long I'm going to live or I'm going to live or my spouse is going to live. I don't know what's going to happen to the cost of living. I don't know what my future Social Security benefit is going to be. And I don't know the return on my investment portfolio. Other than that, it's simple. So this, what happens is you put all the data in into your goal planning software, uh, which includes your not just what how long you're going to live using regular data and that and your social security benefit, but things that you want to do, things you want to accomplish. I want to help educate my granddaughter. I want to retire and take a cruise around the world, whatever the case is, and then. In come those Monte Carlo simulations, and bingo, the button is pushed in the computer, and it says, these are your odds of success. So that's one way to look at that, which is different than what we're talking about, the 4% rule. But I just think it's fascinating, and I've used the 4% rule for years, not because I think it's, frankly, um, a guarantee, because it's not. There can be long periods of time when, say, stocks do really, really well and can be really long periods of time when stocks do really, really badly. Uh, and the 70s would be the second kind, the 90s, particularly the last half of the 90s, would be the first kind. I will say today that starting from this point, there's some good news and some not so good news. The good news is that the bond portion of your portfolio, and this gets back to what John and I were talking about earlier in the broadcast, from here forward, with investment-grade bonds yielding between five and six percent, based on history, you can you can and you can't count on anything, but it's reasonable to assume a five to six percent return for that portion of your portfolio. It's reasonable to assume two other things that are important: that you will have a higher return on the equity or stock portion of your portfolio. And that you'll have, as long as you avoid high-yield bonds, you'll have some protection in bad markets for stocks. So I think it's, I'm a more optimistic about that kind of 4% rule today than when, say, 10-year tre treasuries were priced to yield a little over 1%, and German bonds had a negative return, so not so good. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. You can sneak in right now with the text or call at 512-836-0590. So we're in a sour mood in the United States. Uh, even though our economy is growing, the European economies are not. The Chinese economy is basically in a recession. We still are unhappy, and we see that in our political discourse. So... Uh, what I looked at, I got some really interesting data from uh, a Wall Street firm about satisfaction, it's titled, Satisfaction with the Direction of the Country Can Be a Contrarian Indicator for the Stock Market. What's contrarian, other than the way I am with my family sometimes? A contrarian is you can use it in the opposite direction. So here's U.S. stock market returns for the next 12 months, and they're, what we're using here 
is the S&P 500, and they're looking at a long period of time since 1979. And when fewer than 33% of people polled say they're happy, satisfied, like the way things are going, the return the next 12 months in the S&P 500, you ready? 11.3%. On the other hand, when people are satisfied and have a positive outlook for the beginning, guess what happens? The next 12 months, the return is 97 So optimism led to a lower return, and pessimism led to a higher return. You're listening to Money Talk. I don't think I'm going to have a chance to get into this text, but I will tease you by reading it and do my best next week to answer it. Let's just see. Carl, do you know why VTEC stocks are just on fire. What drives the insane rises over the recent weeks? Actually, I can answer that in one minute. They came out with, um, if it's Virtus, I'm trying to, th- if it's the one I read about, there was a, a company that had some preliminary tests that suggested that uh, it was a better weight loss drug than uh, the ones that are on the market now. There was an article about it in today's Wall Street Journal, but it has to have larger tests. So I think that's what you're talking about. Well, we're out of time. Hope you enjoyed this broadcast this afternoon. I did. I want to thank Kyle for his good work. Join me next Saturday after the news at four to listen to Money Talk. Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. 